Nehemiah chapter 5. If you're using the Pew Bible, you should find that around page 400, 401. Nehemiah chapter 5. I asked Megan to read from James this morning because there's a, there's a link in the ideas, the, the themes of the, the two passages, uh, the one that she just read and the one that we're looking at. And it, that link has caused me to title the sermon this morning, The Gospel and Social Justice. The Gospel and Social Justice. We certainly hear a lot about social justice, uh, the concept of social justice, the words social justice uh, in society around us. But I, I would offer that this is a topic that, that gospel-loving, reformed churches often don't talk about enough. Um, and there's reasons for that that I want to expose. I don't think they're good ones. Uh, but I want to expose them a little bit as we go through the, the text and as I try to bring some application here. But it's a big subject. And as I, as I got to Nehemiah 5 and started reading through it, it was amazing to me how just clearly I felt like the Lord was, was saying, this, this needs to be discussed because what was going on, which we'll get to in a minute, in Jerusalem during the days of Nehemiah uh, has so much carryover throughout history and so much carryover into what we see happening around us in society, which is simply this, that, that there are, there's inequities and the way that people are treated, uh, and particularly by God's people. And God has something to say about that. And so this is a, this is a, a launching into more of that discussion. We, we've, we've talked somewhat about this uh, and tried to do that here at Edgewater. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this up front. There's a good chance that the sermon today will bring up more questions than it gives answers for us in terms of application. And I'm okay with that because I think it should produce in us a continued uh, dialogue and a continued uh, seeking after the Lord's heart for how people, God's people in particular, treat other people. How we deal with the inequities of, of society and, and how we apply the Gospel to our understanding and application of those things. Okay? So that said, let me pray. Uh, we'll read the text and I'll begin to explain uh, what's going on here. Father, we want to we start by saying that we recognize this morning that You are God. You are the Lord. You are the Creator. You are the sustainer of all things. And as such, Lord, as Creator, and we who come under You as Your created ones, we acknowledge that, that we're accountable to You. We're accountable to, to live according to the way we were made to live. Even in the midst of sin, which is our rejection of that way, Lord, through Christ and by Your Word, You've given us the ability to come back under living according to the way we were made. 
And what's dealing, what's being dealt with in this chapter, Lord, it, it, it scratches something in us. It, it touches so much of how we live and how we ought to. So this morning, Lord, I just want to ask you to, by your word, renew us, revive us, bring us to repent where repentance is needed. Let us see the example of Christ this morning. And let us, Father, by your grace, by your Spirit's enablement, let us live as Christ has set us free to live and to love you and to love one another as you have called us to do. May your word accomplish that in us today. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 5. Reminder that uh, what's gone on so far here is they're, they're in the midst of building the wall around the city of Jerusalem. There's been some opposition from those outside, the nations that are surrounding them, uh, to want to delay that work, to halt that work, uh, to discourage the people, even to threaten violently the people. Uh, and we've seen this cycle, right? As God is doing something, He's called His people to come back to rebuild the temple, to reform their worship, to build the wall. Every time God begins to do something good with His people, there's opposition. Sometimes that opposition comes from the outside. Sometimes that opposition rises up from the inside. Their own sinful hearts begin to thwart the work uh, and the calling that God is on them. Uh, and so we're seeing, uh, we just got done seeing opposition from the outside, uh, and now we're going to see it again from the inside here in Nehemiah 5. Another, another problem another effect of sin that's seeking to undo the missional purpose of God's people here to live according to kingdom values under the headship of their king, Yahweh. Verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it's not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, You are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them, and I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. 
Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. I right, look up. Let me, let me explain a little bit about what's, what's going on here. And before I do that, let me start by saying this. As I was walking through the text this week, I came up with probably, as I was fumbling about with it, somewhere between 12 and 15 different points that I could have included in the sermon this morning. <laughs> now, 12 and 15 point sermons are uh, usually pretty long, right? I don't know if I've ever done a 15 pointer. Uh, usually try to keep them around three, right? Uh, you can remember that, uh, and it keeps us from staying here till dinner time. Uh, so, that being said, uh, there's a lot in this text that, that we need to unpack and understand what's going on, uh, what, what the injustice that's occurring here, what's the social inequity that's happening here, and what's the right response to it, all right? And so what I'm going to do is I, I, I tried to whittle it down to, I think I ended up with still 11 ideas that I want to talk about uh, as we talk about uh, what the problem is, what's the response, and why should we care about this. Uh, but what I'm going to do is I'm just going to throw up all those points basically at the same time up on the screen and just sort of try to talk around them, all right? Um, and I trust that the Lord will bring out what he needs to bring out, and uh, I trust that we'll get done in time for that fried chicken to be enjoyed downstairs at lunch, all right? Um, so let's explain what's happening here. They're building the wall. Uh, Nehemiah has called the people to come in from all around whether they're in the city or whether they're in the surrounding villages around Judah, to come in and to, and to help build this wall. This is the priority number one. And in calling them to do so, he's asked them to basically lay down what it is that they had been doing, which would be tending their fields, tending their vineyards, doing their normal daily work, and to come be a part of this important task of, of doing what God has called them to do, restore the wall. Restore the security around Jerusalem and around the temple. All right. So as they've done that, uh, what's happened is one thing that we see here is that there's been a famine. And so whether or not that's just beginning to occur, whether that not that had been going on for some time, it tells us a little bit of something about the the level of stress that that was involved with them coming and laying down those those normal daily tasks and being a part of the building of the wall. They were not only leaving their fields unattended, but, but in a time in which it was probably really important for them to get out of those fields everything that they could because of the famine, they needed to prepare. They needed to, to have as much food available as possible. Right? So they've done that. They've, they've come. They've been obedient to that call. But as they're doing that, it's beginning to take its toll. And so we see the first group of people beginning to complain, saying, look, we, we need to eat, and we don't have food. Because we've walked away from our fields and our vineyards, we, we don't have the grain that we need to feed our families back home and take care of 
what we need to take care of, just the basic necessities of life, we're in trouble here. And, and then others are coming and saying, you know, because of that need for grain, what, it, what it's causing us to do is to go into debt. We can't produce the grain, so those of us who own land have had to mortgage that land to others just so we have enough money for today to buy the grain that we need. And what's happening is as we've mortgaged our land out, that land is, is getting interest. Those mortgages have an interest charge that we're not able to pay. And because we're not able to pay the interest on those, and we don't have any other means to continue to service this debt that we've taken on, we've now resorted to having to sell our own children into slavery, into an indentured servitude to our creditors, so that we can pay the, the, the debt service on today's debt and just try to get grain. And now we've created a problem that we can't get out of. We don't have food. We don't have money. We don't have any means to pay for this debt except for our kids. And now that we've sold them into slavery, how do we get them out? So you've got this, this problem that compounds upon problem upon problem. And then another group of people says, and, and, and on top of that, we, we still have to pay taxes. And the taxes that we are having to pay aren't just for the immediate community, but those go back to Artaxerxes. Those go back to our Persian overlords. We've talked already about the Persian system was, was pretty lenient when it came to religious liberty, but they were not lenient when it came to taxes. No government really is, right? And so they've got this, this additional fear that not only can we pay our local creditors, but we can't pay the government creditors, and we're, we're at serious risk here. And it wasn't just that they had these problems and these sort of nebulous, unnamed creditors, but the, the, the real accusation here was that our creditors are our fellow Jews. The poor among us are borrowing from the more well-off among us, and it's the more well-off among us who are exacting this interest. And it's the more well-off among us who, who are taking our, our sons and daughters as slaves. And there was a provision in the law, the, the Levitical law, under Moses, that, that there was meant to be relief for the poor. There were, there were every seventh year, there was, there was a giving back. Uh, every 50th year, this is the year of Jubilee. I mean, it, everything got given back. Because God had, God had known that it was going to be really important for the survival of His people and the, and the equity amongst His people that there would be opportunity for folks never to get so burdened by their debt and so burdened by the systems around them that they could not get out of the cycle. And it seems that what's happening here is that that's not being observed. Because there's a hopelessness that they're, that they're crying out about without a sense of relief. They're, they're just saying, we're so stuck in the, in the downward spiral of the oppression, we don't see a way out. And it's our brothers who are doing this. Clearly, they weren't giving them the freedoms that the law provided. So Nehemiah faces this crisis. All right, let me... Throw up just some observations that I want us to consider from the text. The first observation is this. People suffer under unjust 
social systems. The problem that was happening here in Jerusalem was that basically they were operating under the systems of the world rather than operating under the system of the law. In other words, they weren't operating the way God had intended them to operate, but they seemed to have been adopting kind of the normal status quo, business as usual. This is just the way things work of the nations around them. Why, why is that? You know, we, we're not told here, but we can make some assumptions about it just based on kind of the human heart, right? The law, again, makes these provisions for them that if they live according to the ways of God, that, that it, it, it puts a, it puts a, a, a sort of a lid on the propensity of the human heart to get greedy, right? Uh, it, it puts a, a rein on those who are in positions of power and privilege from, from being able to put their thumb on and abuse the poor so much that the poor can never get out of the cycle. The world system, on the other hand, doesn't have any kind of provision like that. The world system is basically this. Look, you got your problems, I got my problems, right? You need to borrow money, I'll lend you the money, perhaps, but if I do, I need to be a good steward, I have rights too, so I'm going to charge interest on that. I'm going to make something of, the, of a profit for, for the risk that I'm taking in order to lend you the money. And if you can't deal with that, again, that's your problem. I have a problem, and, and that is to make sure that I'm taking care of what's mine. And that seems to be what was happening here. And I, and I don't think, because of the sort of the, the surprise that, that was on the, the, the faces of those when, when Nehemiah finally brings this to light and says, this isn't right, there's a sense in which they kind of, they kind of act like we didn't really realize how bad our behavior really was. And my guess is that it's, it's sort of rooted in this inherent sense that we all have that, that we've got rights. I've got a right to make interest on the money that I loan out. And God isn't denying that, by the way. right? But if, if my right is rooted in nothing but my rights, my holding on to my rights is, 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 is really all about because, doggone it, it's my right without consideration for the effect that my rights and privileges might have on other people to do them irreversible harm, then I've, I've lost my way. I'm not living according to the heart of God. And that seems to be what happens here. And people suffer. That's the point here. That, they're legitimately suffering and they can't get out. Why? Because the system just won't let them. And the, and the second thing that we see here is that, again, most often it's the poor who suffer most at the hands of the rich and the powerful. Just kind of the way it works. The, the, those who have the means are in a position of, of relative safety here. They're not in danger of finding themselves in a hole that they can't get out of. But the poor, when they get in a hole, it's nearly impossible for them to get out. There's a saying, and it's been, it's been phrased a few different ways, and I don't even know where it, it came from originally, but it's, it's basically this. It's that, it's that most societies are only about three days or nine meals away from revolution. 
Most societies are, are about three days or nine meals away from anarchy. And, and what's meant by that is that, look, when, when people's bellies are empty and they don't have the means to do anything about it, it doesn't take real long before the whole thing falls apart and they rise up and cry out and topple. When you're lacking resources and lacking privilege, you don't have very long. And some of you know what that's like. Those of you who live paycheck to paycheck, consider what that would be like for your own family if the next paycheck didn't show up. How many days would you go? And for those of us who, who don't live in that kind of a, a, a immediate danger, we've got food in our pantry. We've got refrigerators that are fairly full. If you think you could live more than three days without the need to feel like the whole world's upended and you've got to rise up, that's probably a good definition of what it means to have privilege. And the thing about the poor suffering the most in systems of, of injustice, in times of injustice, is that it, it, it's not just immediately the poor, but, but oftentimes the most negatively affected are the innocent children of those who are poor. Notice that, that we see here this several mentions here of our sons and our daughters. I think there's something very important about that. These folks are crying out. Look, it's, it's not just me. Look, at, at, at the end of the day, if you want to blame me for not making enough money or having enough grain or, or you know, you want to blame me for taking on these loans, you can do that. That would be unjust, I think, for us to do that if we're righteous, right? But my kids didn't have anything to do with this. And yet it's my kids who are suffering the most because they're the ones who are being sent off to work as servants for, again, these rich and powerful people who are continuing to keep their thumb on. And the mention of daughters is significant here. That's brought up a couple of different times, and it's singled out, which most commentators seem to think means that there was probably some measure of sex trade happening. Like the abuse wasn't just financial. The abuse was physical and sexual. Slavery is cyclical. It's generational. Not only can the parents not find their way out, but if their kids are sold off into slavery and the mom and dad can't get them out, what hope do they ever have of getting out? They're not even starting off with a position of, of, of having a farm. Now, that, that sort of helps explain sort of the, the, the problem here. But, but here's the thing that, that this text also brings out. It's that God's people can be just as complicit as the world in committing these injustices. God's people can be just as complicit. Look again at, at verses 1 and 8. There rose a great outcry of the people and their wives against the Jewish Brothers, this wasn't just that they were complaining about the Persians or Sanballat and Tobiah and the nations around them, although they were taking advantage as well. You see at the end of verse 8, but even you sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. This is Nehemiah's complaint back to the, the wealthy Jews. Now get this, this is what that means. He, he comes in and says, look, what, what we tried to do 
me and the officials, when we, when we kind of started to set up camp here and try to write the system, we went out and we took the treasury under our control and we started to buy back your children that had been sold off into indentured servitude. And so there's this sort of expectation that we'll, we'll do our best with, with the revenue, the community revenue, to try to redeem these folks out of the, the enslavement of the nations. But, but you, seeing that, you've taken advantage of the system. And so you said, well, I guess we'll, when we take, as Jews, the children of our fellow Jews as payment, we'll do that with a kind of a, a no risk because we know that if, if we do that, well, the, the government will just come in and buy them back. So now we're essentially double profiting off of the problem, off of the backs of the poor. We're getting the servants, we're getting that debt service, and then we can sell it right back to the government and make our money back. And what's Nehemiah saying to them? He's saying, shame on you. Why? Because guess who pays the taxes? You're putting the burden right back again on the people. You see the cyclical, ugly nature of the injustices of the system? And he says, look, you can be, even, even with the, the knowledge of the law, just as complicit. And, and again, I don't think that they realize necessarily, all of them, just how complicit they were. Some of them knowingly worked the system. And I believe others were probably just saying, this is just sort of the way things work. I mean, I, I'm supposed to charge interest. I'm just being a good steward, right? So you're complicit in the problem. And not only are you sinning against God and sinning against your brother in that complicity, but you're sullying the name of God and His people amongst the nations. Right? He says that here in the text. What about our witness? When the world looks upon the people of God, they're supposed to see a different system. They're supposed to see the heart of God who cares for his people who cares for the poor and the oppressed, who, who brings equity. And when they look and see God's people treating God's people in the same way that they do, they, they have nothing to do but call us either hypocrites or say, what's the difference? Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. You know, we're seeing happening around us, and, and, and you see it all over, when the church isn't that different from the world, you see the world cry out, what a joke. What a bunch of hypocrites. What a waste. People suffer. Most often the poor suffer. Often the innocent suffer most. God's people can be just as complicit as the world. And it's not just sin against God and others, but it, it sullies the name of God in our community. That's the problem. So how should God's people respond to social justice issues? Let's look again at what Nehemiah did. 
The first thing that we see here, verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. First thing is, we should be angry about this. It's right for the righteous to be angry when those who are supposed to be righteous are acting unrighteously. Which is to say this, injustice cannot be ignored. And that's where I think the the church is, is failing so often in our day and age. It's too easy to ignore the problem. And Nehemiah, if he were here, would say, what? You should be outraged at this. You know, Frank Schaefer, who is the son of Francis Schaefer, wrote a a book called A Time for Anger. The subtitle was The Myth of Neutrality. And he said this, he said, there are times in which anyone with a shred of moral principle should be profoundly angry. And these are such times, he says. You may have seen the popular bumper sticker slogan, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. There's this, there's the sense in which Nehemiah is kind of saying the same thing. If, if, if you're not angry, we haven't been paying attention. Injustice will continue unabated until those who are not wronged feel as indignant as those who are. And so Nehemiah is righteously angry. It reminds us of Jesus, doesn't it? When Jesus walks into the, the, the temple courts and he sees the it's basically been turned into a giant supermarket, right? And what does he do? He gets he gets angry. And he begins to upend the tables and he and he begins to to rebuke those who are selling in the temple and, and why? Well he says, Don't make my father's house, right? A marketplace essentially. But but it wasn't just that the the temple itself was being or the glory of God itself was being defamed by what they were doing. There was something actually appropriate about what they were doing. There was to be provisions for the poor who were coming to make sacrifices to be able to get the, the, the doves or whatever it is that they needed to go make the sacrifice. The fact that they were there wasn't necessarily the problem. The problem is that they were seeking to profit so much in the sale of those things that they were oppressing the poor who were simply there trying to worship God. And so Jesus was upset about the, the, the way in which they've sullied God, but also the way in which they've oppressed the poor. And Jesus' anger was not sin, but righteousness. We see that same kind of attitude here with Nehemiah. In other words, our hearts should break with God's heart over injustice. Read through your Bible. Do a word search and, and, and look for words like poor, widow, orphan, oppressed. And, and just note for yourself how over and over and over again, God makes His heart clearly known. God is for them. And for the righteousness uh, of, of God's people to be displayed towards them and the wickedness of oppressors to be shut down. That's why Jorge read that psalm earlier. God takes very seriously injustice, particularly against the poor. So our hearts should break with God's heart over injustice 
And our anger then should be, should be leading us to action. Notice here what he says here in, in verse 6. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. He says, I took counsel with myself. Which is to say, he, he thought about it. He was kind of measured about it. He, he, he started to really process what was going on here. And then he did something about it. He says, I brought charges against the nobles and officials saying to them, look, you're exacting interest from his brother. And I held an assembly against them and said, we as far as we're able have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers so that they may be sold to us? Verse 9, I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God and to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? What's he doing here? He's confronting injustice and he's confronting unjust people. Which is to say that the right response for those of us who, who are convicted and see that God's heartbeat for justice in our society ought to be, ought to be lived out by His people. That, that's what we ought to do. We ought to be angry about it and then we ought to do something about it. And we ought to confront it. First in ourselves and then in others. We need to speak truth to power. We need to speak truth to power. The truth of the Word of God. And then we also need to speak prophetically. Notice that he shakes out his robe here. It says that he shook out his, his robe and he said, may God shake you out if you continue to do this. May you be emptied in the same way. There's something very powerful about that symbolism. And one of the most powerful things about it was that in, in the robe, they would often tuck their... Money. It was kind of like, you know, they didn't have pockets and, and wallets quite like we do with our, our Levi's, but they, they would tuck into their belt and into the folds of their, their robe those goods, their, their wallets essentially. And so he's shaking it out as a demonstration, like, look, shake out this greed. Shake out this holding of your money and hoarding of your things for yourself. And if you don't, make God shake you out. Do it for you till you're empty. Because you're not a good steward. And you're not a righteous person. And I think it's right for us as the church to be thinking about how do we rightly confront injustice? And do we speak truth to it? And do we speak prophetically to it? Or do we just kind of say, well, it's just kind of the, you know, the, the, the way the system works. I gotta take care of, of, of just me and not worry so much about it. That's their problem. I've got my own problems. Is that the right response? No. We need to speak to it. And then, and then thirdly, we need to give or lend to those in need with no expectation of profit. Which is probably one of the most radical statements in this whole thing. And yet that's exactly what Nehemiah says to them. Stop exacting interest. Stop charging usury. Now, I want to be clear about this because the, the Word of God isn't opposed to the concept of interest. Alright? Usury and interest are, 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 are... Usury is a specific kind of interest charge. And the definition of usury is that which would take advantage of. It's, it's the charging of high interest rates such that people can't get out of the debt. And that's exactly what we know. If we, we look back, we see evidence that in the, around the 5th century B.C., that's what was happening. 
the, the poor were not just being lent money at a, at, a, at a nominal interest charge. They were being lent money at an exorbitant interest charge. It reminds me of, of like the payday loan system of our current day. Right? What do folks do? They're three, they're three days away from, from anarchy, right? They, they've got no paycheck coming for two more weeks and, and that there's no food in the pantry. And so oftentimes, they'll go and they'll get a payday loan. Which on the surface seems like a, a really compassionate idea. You know, give you a little money up front, you can pay it back when you get paid. Oh, and we'll charge 37% interest. And when you get into that cycle, you can never get out, right? That's, that's what was happening here. And Nehemiah said, knock it off. Stop. This is unjust. If you're going to lend to somebody, if you're going to give to somebody, do it out of a heart of compassion, not of an expectation of profit. Don't expect a profit. Walk according to the Word. Do you fear God? We, we ought not do this. God told us not to do it, and we're doing it. And it's interesting here, when, when, he, when he talks about how even he had done this lending, right before he says we need to stop charging interest, commentators have kind of argued about whether he's admitting that he was part of the problem too, or whether he was saying, no, watch my example. I was lending, but I wasn't charging the interest. We're not really sure. But either way, we see a good principle here, which is lead by example. If he was complicit in it too, he's humbly saying, I did it and I need to stop. Follow my example. Or he's just saying, look, I wasn't doing it all along. You should have been following my example. Because God's Word told us this. Why is forgiving debt such an important part of the heart of God? Listen, it's real simple, because forgiving debt is a display of the Gospel. The debt that we owe to God in our sin is, is a debt that we could never get out of. You can't work your way out of that kind of debt. And in God's mercy and grace, He paid it for us. And that's what He's calling His people to. That, that's, that's what the law was rooted in. I, I bought you out of slavery. I brought you out of Egypt. I brought your freedom. Therefore, treat one another the way that I've treated you. It's a display of the grace of God. It's a display ultimately of the Gospel. And if we find ourselves in a position where we've, we've said, you know what, I've been a part of the problem, whether it's in, in, in a... Uh, an inherent thing that I, uh, uh, an explicit thing that I've done, or whether it's just been my kind of participation in the system without really thinking through what I've done, there's a repentance that needs to come about. And, and notice the repentance that Nehemiah is calling them to here. He's saying, look, verse 12, restore what you've done. And they respond, we will restore these and require nothing from them we will do as you say. Verse 11, Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money and grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. If repentance is genuine, if you realize that you've been unjust in your treatment of people, it's not enough to just say, you know what, you're right, I won't do it anymore. 
But it's right then in repentance to say, we need to make right what we have wronged. Which is exactly what Zacchaeus did. Right? Zacchaeus, the tax collector, most despised guy in, in Jerusalem in the day of Jesus, and Jesus you know, finds him up in the tree and he says, your faith has saved you. And Zacchaeus, who had wronged all these people as a, as a display of his faith, says, I'm going to give half of this back. In other words, uh, my sin was, was not just a sin against God, but it was a sin against others. And to make it right with God, I, I make it right with others. Give it back. It's the same principle that we see here in Nehemiah chapter 5. Repentance and restitution should go hand in hand. There's a lot to think about here, isn't there? There's a lot for the, the church, for God's people to be processing in all of this. It's right for us to search our hearts and to say, God, is there, is there a way in which I'm complicit in the, the systemic problems of injustice in our society? Have I just been so worried about my own rights that I, that I have not cared enough to realize that my rights can sometimes trample the rights of others? Have I taken wrongly from others? Is, 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 the way I, does the way I do my taxes maybe put an unfair burden on those who don't know all the loopholes that I can get through? Have I looked upon the poor in our community and just said, well, you know, if they'd have been a little bit smarter about the way they'd invested their money, you know, if they hadn't gone to those payday loan centers, you know, it's their fault. As opposed to recognize that maybe... Maybe there's something about the systems that we all participate in that have put them in pits that they can't get out of, and we ought to think about that and do something to change it. Or maybe I just need to, I, maybe there's things I don't need to participate in any longer if I know that my participation is causing injustice and oppression of people who can't be helped. I don't know what the, what the answers to all those questions are. That's why I said at the beginning, this, this might bring up more questions than it gives answers, but it's right for us to, as the church to begin thinking through and praying through and asking these questions, God, have we wronged you and have we wronged others? And if we're repentant about it, what do we need to do to make it right? I want to end the, the, the message with this question. Why should gospel-loving Christians care about social justice? And I'm going to answer that in two ways. And I'm going to try to answer that basically by, by bringing up two of the most common objections, two of the most common reasons why I think the church, particularly the American church, has been so bad about caring about these things. What are the reasons that we give as to why we shouldn't worry so much about social justice? And try to combat them with some biblical truth. Proverbs 28.5 says, Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. That's describing you, Christian. If, you, if you're seeking the Lord, according to Proverbs 28, you understand justice completely. If you understand the gospel, you understand it. So the problem isn't that we fail for lack of knowledge. The problem is that we fail for lack of application of that knowledge. Why should we care about social justice? Number one, because privilege, rightly understood, breeds generosity, not guilt. See, here's one of the most common objections that, that, that I hear. Look, 
when you, when you start talking about these kinds of things in the church, and invariably what happens is, is it just makes the, 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 the wealthy among us just sort of feel like, well, it's all on you. You're guilty. So we hear things like privilege, and we hear things like white guilt, and we hear other phrases like this where we're easy to say, you know what, this is, this is just oppression of, of a different group of people now. You're just trying to place the blame on somebody. I want to combat that with the Word. There's five more verses that need to be read here in chapter 5. Look down at them. Verse 14. Nehemiah says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of our Xerxes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came from us with, from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on the people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for the people. You know what I get out of that? A couple things. The first one is this. Nehemiah was a very wealthy man. He was a very wealthy man. If you were able to produce every day an ox and six sheep and the birds and enough wine in abundance to feed 150 people at your table, you're not out on the food line picketing and saying, I don't have grain. You've got a ton. And so here's Nehemiah, who's a rich man. Here's Nehemiah, who as the governor has the, the, uh, the entitlement of taking additional tax revenue to provide for himself. And he's saying, you know what, I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to out of my own abundance pay for the food needs of those around me. And guess what? He's there saying, don't exact interest, don't be unjust, I'm a rich man, I don't have guilt for being wealthy. I just recognize that God has given me this to be generous to those who need it. And that's the way he lives. In Christ we have been given so much. Namely, our freedom, which means that we're free to give away whatever gifts have been given to us. Because those gifts no longer define us. Uh, my wealth, my status, my, the, 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 the stuff that I can accumulate no longer defines me. What defines me is Christ, and my security is not in my stuff. My security is in Christ, so I'm free from the bondage of that, that, that self-imposed oppression of trying to be defined by how much I can accumulate. I can give it away. And there's no sense in which he's guilty about having much. There's no sense in which the Scriptures make anybody should, should feel guilty about having much. God is the giver. And to those He's given much, He requires much. As a blessing. Don't buy into the lie that, that has so politically divided this country as of late, which is this, that, is, that, that, that rights and privileges 
whether it's, it's held by this group of people or whether it's held by that group of people and, and, and the political, uh, you know, the political banter right now is to take from this group so that this group can have more. Or don't take from this group so this group can have more, right? And, 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 and what's happening here? We've got this lie that it's a zero-sum game. If, if you're going to be blessed and you're going to get more rights, then, then somebody has to lose rights. And in the economy of God, it doesn't work that way. God has no lack. God has given to some. And He says, you know what? If I've given to you, be a good steward and bless others. There's no lack. There's an abundance. There's an overflow. When God gives and we pour out what God gives, God continues to give. If you're faithful little, you'll be entrusted with much. It's not a zero-sum game. I read that Rich Mullins once said, we need to be born again since Jesus said that to a guy named Nicodemus. But if you tell me I have to be born again to enter the kingdom, I can tell you we also have to sell everything we have and give it to a poor, give it to the poor, because Jesus said that to one guy too. That's bad theology. That is bad theology. What the Scripture does say in 1 John 3 is this, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? In other words, God's not asking you to sell everything you have, but He's saying if, if you have and you see people in need and you aren't giving to them as God has given to you, you don't get the Gospel. How does the love that God's shown you displayed in you? It's not there. God's not calling us to poverty. He's calling us to generosity. He's calling us to a generosity rooted in the generosity that He's displayed through the Gospel and saying, look, love me and love others more than you love your stuff. So privilege rightly understood breeds generosity, not guilt. Lastly this, because a whole Gospel affects the whole person. The other big objection to why the church should or shouldn't deal in issues of social justice, why, why should we care about these things or talk about these things, is because we have this, this, um, this bifurcation of, of, of a gospel of justification over here and a gospel of reconciliation over here. And you got some who say, look, the gospel is about justification. It's Jesus' death on the cross. It's about paying for our sin. It's about making us right before God. The wrath of God, you know, born on the cross of Jesus so that our, our sins can be forgiven. That's, that's the gospel. And you know what I say? Amen. That's the gospel. And you got another group of people over here who said, no, the gospel for today, and this is where the social gospel movement has taken its root. The gospel for today is really about you know, caring for people, liberation socially and politically and economically. And the problem is, they're both only half right. What did Jesus say? He came to set the captives free. He, he came to, to bring freedom to the poor. What did He mean by that? Was that just spiritual? Well, if it was, then I can't explain why He did what He did in the temple. Jesus purchased us body and soul. How can you care for someone's soul if you don't also care for their body? We're whole people. We're created in the image of God. We're not disembodied. If you think it's all spiritual and that the body doesn't mean anything, you're a Gnostic. 
The whole gospel affects the whole person. And here's the other thing I think it's important to say. Justice isn't a political issue, it's a moral one. It's a moral one. It's about how we're loving our neighbor. It's about standing up against evil in the world. And can I just get real dicey here for a minute? Can I, can I step on your toes a little bit? Are we consistent in our moral convictions, church? Don't talk about politics. Don't talk about political things in the church. Well, we talk about abortion. Well, we talk about marriage. The definition of marriage. Are those political issues? Well, they are, actually. But why do we talk about them? Because they're moral issues. And God's Word clearly has something to say about moral issues. It's right for us to talk about those things. Is social injustice any different? Philippians 2. I'll close with this. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're called to live out the testimony and the ministry of Jesus in the world, and we're called to a life of emptying ourselves for the benefit of others, both in their soul and in their body. So reckon with that. We need to reckon with that. We need to keep talking about it. We need to keep acting on it. Today you might need to repent. Today you might need to give something back. Today we might all need to be a bit more generous as God in Christ has been generous to us. Father, thank You for Your Word. Let it shape us and change us, not according to man's thinking, but according to Yours. Father, we don't want Your name or the name of Your church to be sullied because of hypocrisy in the pews. So help us, Father, to reflect You. Help us to love. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.